Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the generic podcast. We talk about everything horror, science fiction, sometimes fantasy. episode we have author P.L. McMillan, otherwise known as Plem, as we chat about her new novella dropping December 6th from Timber Ghost Press, Sisters of the Crimson Vine. I'll go ahead and leave the link down in the show notes, so if you're interested in pre-ordering the book after this episode, you can go ahead and do that. So without wasting any more time, let's get into it. Plem, welcome to the show today. I'm so glad to have you on here. Um, we got to get this little bit of time today. How are you doing? I'm good. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, yeah. Uh, so before we get into some of your works, because I know you have like a lot of short stories, you got some some novellas and everything. So, I mean, you get, you're getting pretty busy, you know. So <laughs> um, before we get into all that, I just wanted to see like kind of like what got you into the genre. Um, I know like you're big into like Stephen King and you got like a lot of the, I guess like kind of like darker stories and like the cosmic kind of horror sense, which is like super awesome. I feel like we need more of that in the horror realm. Um, but like, yeah, just like tell us about yourself and, and how you got involved in all that. Yeah, so I read horror obsessively when I was young. And my mom also usually would buy those bulk boxes of books at Salvation Army to like feed my habit but she also didn't usually go through it to censor anything so I also read like Stephen King in elementary school and like (laughs) Clive Parker and all this stuff and needless to say like it it started I was I was introduced to it quite young Mm -hmm. (laughs) one of my favorite memories although at the time it was horrifying I started what was a ripoff of the Fear Street series Mm-hmm. Um, so I was in elementary writing these short little stories, but everything had to have blood on it. At the time, I thought that's what horror was. So there's bloody skeletons and bloody houses and bloody people and bloody pumpkins. And I illustrated all these. So I went through so many red pencil crayons and <laughs> eventually my teacher called home and my mom had to have a talk with me about how you don't write horror at school like she didn't tell me not to write horror she's like just save it for when you're at home honey yeah so I guess it started young and it just grew from there I mean I always kept reading it that and sci-fi uh and fantasy a lot when I was a kid I feel like now I have a harder time accepting typical fantasy tropes as much so I don't read it as much anymore but yeah, horror will probably always be my my relied upon genre, which is why I've always been drawn to write for it. So with like the the cosmic horror element, was that something that while you were like trying to more like just like figure out like what kind of books you enjoyed versus what kinds were just like, you know, your regular reading versus like this is where I can draw my inspiration from. Um, at what point were you getting more involved in that? kind of um, reading and writing? So I stumbled upon H.P. Lovecraft. 
I think in high school and I didn't know cosmic horror was a genre at that point I was just like oh this is cool like tentacle things that's fun and obviously his work has influenced a lot of different things like Warhammer 40k has some Lovecraftian elements in it Uh, a lot of movies like The Evil Dead has Necronomicon in it so when I finally got to Lovecraft, I realized I'd always kind of been drawn to his mythos in a way. And from there, I guess, I don't know if I, again, didn't know what cosmic horror was. I didn't, so I didn't seek it out. I just like, when I would stumble on it, I'd be like, oh yeah, this is, this is awesome. Like Junji Ito, when I found his yeah. manga, I was like, this is amazing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, I, I had no idea so I'd always been kind of like an avid manga reader you know like a super nerdy love mm-hmm. all the anime and love all the manga and everything and I had like found like some some pretty obscure horror manga um, but somehow that one just that that whole catalog of what he has just has like evaded me for the longest time and so when I moved down to Texas the first year there was like this coffee shop that I used to go to all the time and um the the people that were there would always comment and they were working there the baristas and they'd be like oh well man you're always reading but like it's do you just exclusively read horror and I was like I read like some sci-fi every now and then and you know I mean the the fantasy stuff, like you said, is it's a little bit harder to to get into that, you know, between the the crazy names that they have <laughs> to, trying to a pronounce. lot of apostrophes. Yeah. That's yeah. Just, gracious. So I had started like trading books with them, and one of them gave me a Junji Ito book, and I was like, oh my goodness! I think it was like it was a Maki. Like, yeah, that's like the classic one. Oh man! And just like ran through the entire catalog, and so now like I have. Anytime anything like comes up on um, Amazon where it's like, pre-order this book. I'm like, yeah, yep. <laughs> this is going to go ahead and get it. See, funnily enough, my, probably my second favorite genre it, are the classics. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people would assume that my favorite book is a horror, like within the horror genre. It's actually The Count of Monte Cristo. Oh. I've read it probably 12 times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, some of, so like, some of the classics are good. I think like the hardest thing for me with the classics was definitely just like reading them at too early of an age we had to read a lot of classic literature in like fourth and fifth grade and I was just like I don't understand what's going on here see I would argue it's not that you read it at a young age I feel like school can kind of spoil it this is coming from an English literature major um having to analyze something to death can really kill your love for it I read um The Catcher in the Rye on my own Uh, a family friend gave it to me And then, so I read it probably in sixth grade. And then in, in high school, we had to break it down and I, it killed a lot of my love for it. Like having to like analyze it. It's like, like to death. It was, I was like, I, I've never read the book since again. So I would say sometimes uh, the academic world can be cruel to our, our love of books. Oh yeah. Yeah, I mean, I remember reading Catcher in the Rye, and so we went through the whole book, right, and they were just like, oh, just, you know, take notes, and we'll talk about it at the end, and then, like, the rest of that semester was just, like, picking the book apart, and I was like, well, I really liked this book until we did this, and then uh, we did that with a few other books, too, and um, yeah, I think, like, that's, like, the hardest thing is, like, you're going in, and it's, like, you're looking at a book 
one way and then you're just like ripping it apart like slaughterhouse five was the same way we did that with that one and i was like this book is awesome and then like they were like okay let's like find all like the, the things that like don't work in this book and i'm like can can we just not i was like it's a good book by itself i like it like that so and then i find it's, it's pretty funny that it's like now it's like i'm going like that's what i'm going to school for is, is for uh, english and creative writing um, yeah so. i do want to have a caveat for that mr smalls yeah. in junior high you were a blessing he read us the hobbit and let us light candles and then at the end of it we uh he brought in food and we had a hobbit's feast so bless you mr smalls <laughs> that that's that's gonna be pretty what did you guys eat do you remember um, what the feast was with the spread? Um, I guess you couldn't do that now because of all the food allergies and having to be mm. a bit more sensitive. But he brought in like, um, like grape juice that we could pretend was wine. He got like a Costco rotisserie chicken and like you know a veggie platter and stuff like that. Yeah. So like stuff you'd get at a deli. But like you know when he's like finishing off the hobbit and you're eating in the dark with candles um it makes it a little bit more fun for sure hell yeah man i would i would have loved to do something like that i mean we had um i remember the one of the i think it was like the sixth grade teacher that i had mr crescitelli he went through when harry potter came out and he'd be like all right i have to like a curriculum set up over this we're gonna read this instead and he would just read that to the class until like anytime i think there was like I had him for like two classes and each time like when the book came out he would like that's all he would do like the class would just be that mm -hmm. and then like we'd like go through and do our little like writing assignments on it and everything so that was pretty cool so you have quite a good spread of different short stories and different anthologies and then you have your collection of short stories which by the way it's major kick-ass cover here <laughs> <laughs> for what remains when the stars burn out. I haven't gotten to this one yet, but I wanted to know like kind of like what was your like main inspiration when you were working on that and like what brought you from, you know, just going into the different anthologies to like I just want to do the short works now. Yeah, uh well first off, call out to The Waking of Sky Tree who did the cover. We actually found them on DeviantArt and it was the first cover they had ever done so they gave me uh, a nice rate actually and it was of course beautiful a lot of people have commented on it and I like I'll email these compliments to them I say them I don't know they never gave me their real name <laughs> it's just the waking of Skytree and they just like respond like oh whatever cool glad your book's doing well I was like no but look at the comments on the cover and they're like okay hey, whatever <laughs> I'm like the true <laughs> mysterious artist yeah. call out to you but as you mentioned like I've been published in over a dozen anthologies and collections but I guess I'd gotten to the point where I was like I want to have my own collection I mean when you go to a convention or something people always ask oh do you have a book and the best I could be would be like oh well you can buy this collection it has this one story or this one has this other story but like I couldn't exactly offer a bulk portfolio of my work, I guess, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So I sought out calls. I think a lot of the stories in What Remains When the Stars Burn Out are reprints of what I th I think are some of my best stories. And then four or five new ones. And I also made illustrations for each. So each story has its own custom illustration. So I guess uh, for a collection, it's harder to say like what inspired it because every story is different. 
I have cosmic horror, sci-fi horror, body horror. There's even a folk horror in there. So it, it also runs the gambit of different genres, sub-genres as well. So the inspiration, I guess, behind it was the fact that I wanted to have something I could hold and be like, this, this me, <laughs> <laughs> this me. <laughs> instead of like this like big stack of like I'm in these books yeah like because people would be like what should I read and I'm like well if you like cosmic horror you could buy this one collection which has one cosmic horror from me or if you want a different type you can get this other one so now I can just be like get my collection <laughs> there you go so when you were writing it like the newer stories that you have in there did you know that you were going to like insert some of the other stories just kind of like get the whole collection in there or was it like you, you started writing those different stories and then you were and that's when you like made the decision when you were just like I may as well just add all these other ones in here it actually happened more so I was writing a bunch of new stuff and I hadn't submitted to anything just because none of the none of my stories fit the calls because sometimes I'll write a story just because I have an idea other times if I see a call and I'm inspired by the theme I'll write a story for it which of course makes it easier to submit that story so in this case I actually had all the stories done. All the new ones were just ones that I'd written and either had submitted to a couple calls and been rejected, or I had just written and not found the right call for it. But when I looked back at it, I was like, well, I have like all of this. I should just try to get it published as a collection. Like I have enough, you know? <laughs> but I did pick the stories kind of as what I felt were the best representation of my journey as a writer. Godmouth is in there. It was one of my earliest published stories. It appeared in a Lovecraft special edition of Hino Magazine as the featured story, and then was made into a podcast. A lot of people call it out as being uh, one of their favorite cosmic horror stories from me so I was like I have to include it plus I ended up creating a really awesome piece of art for it I'm really proud of it so you're doing you're doing writing and, and teaching and art all at the same time oh well, I don't teach oh you always don't teach okay I'm a technical writer by trade ah okay yeah. So just from like reading about all, like some of the stuff that you've done, you did like a, a few, you went to Asia for a few years and, and worked in there. Is that, is that right? Yeah. So out of college, um, well, I guess the context was in college, I, I often saw my friends traveling and I was like sick with jealousy. I was like, how dare you? <laughs> um, but I, all my, all the money that I made working went into tuition. Okay. And so I'd always wanted to go to Asia, and I, so I decided to teach English as a second language. So I guess I lied. I did teach at one time, but I don't know if I'd count teaching English as a second language. Usually you play games with the kids. But so I went to Thailand for six months and then Japan for two years. Mm -hmm. uh, so that was definitely an interesting experience. And it was actually in Japan that I started writing with a serious intent of getting published. So that's when I first started submitting my stories and really writing with the idea that I should try to get these published. So while you were there and you like made that conscious decision, uh, was there something in particular that like clicked with you while you were there that was like, okay, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna start doing this. I'm gonna start submitting stuff. Or was there like some kind of trigger for that? Or 
I almost want to say, and I don't want to scare you because you did just say that you're going um, for your English degree with creative writing. Mm -hmm. um, that's what I did. And my creative writing classes like ruined me. Like I didn't write for a while after. And I think maybe just physically going to Japan helped me distance myself. I think part of the problem was when I went to uh, university, there was still that stigma against genres with a lot of students there was a lot of stigma and I was the only one who's writing the genre mm -hmm. so I got a lot of flack like every class for it yeah and so <laughs> I just didn't write for a while after and I don't I guess like physically going to another country helped me move past it both mm -hmm. literally and emotionally but I also had um a few health scares in Japan, I actually wrote about that. My story falling is based on a major tipping point of my health. So I guess it was also a way of processing because you're in a foreign country, you can't speak the language, you have to call your company to send a translator to take you to the doctor. Like, it was, it was definitely a terrifying experience. I was like, guess I guess I die here. <laughs> <laughs> also, that was the first time I heard, um, so I know in the States, you use that siren in Silent Hill for tornado warnings and such. Mm -hmm. I had never heard it in Canada. Okay. So the only context I had was Silent Hill. And my very first month in Japan, that siren goes off on a foggy morning. Yeah. And this Japanese announcement goes on. And I was like, this is it. I'm dead. <laughs> <laughs> Turns out they do it like every month for community announcements in so, like some Japanese small towns. They'll just play oh. the siren and then they'll broadcast across town like news that they feel is worthy for the town to know. Like, yeah. So there I is. guess <laughs> I guess that the and the feeling of uh, alienation in a way because like you are a foreigner. Mm -hmm. So that that like that feeds into a lot of cosmic horror, like the otherness. I mean. Lovecraft wrote a lot about that. I'm rambling, but there you go. <laughs> yeah, it's funny that you mentioned um, Silent Hill. I don't know if you've been like following my like my um, my podcast or social media or anything, but that's like my favorite. Pretty much like hands down, that's like my favorite franchise ever. <clears throat> and I had, I I mean, I've heard the air raid sirens before, but it's been at like museums and stuff. I remember I moved in with my ex at this time. And uh, we had moved into this place in Connecticut. I was like the only one home and an air raid siren goes off. And I had no idea what the hell was going on. And like, I started getting freaked out because like I had just woken up. And so like my mind is like, I don't think I left my game on. And like, I'm definitely not playing that. I was like, are we like <laughs> getting attacked or something? You're checking you know? for and the so, decay. Like, You're like, yeah. I'm like running out and I'm like looking around and I'm like, oh my gosh and like people are just like walking around like it's normal I'm like do you guys hear that and they're like oh yeah it's just, it's just the local fire station you know they they run it from time to time just in case oh, we need terrifying. it like, my goodness <laughs> how do you know when you're gonna need it then right oh, man. <laughs> how do you know if it's not like a you know it's like an actual emergency or something but I guess they would do something like the same thing that you were talking about where they would do the um, announcements or something afterwards so do you find and this is one of the things that, you know, because you were you mentioned um, how there's some things in uh, the college curriculum for English that can kind of like distance you for a little bit from your writing. Uh, one of one of my things is that I really like looking into the way that other cultures 
do horror because it is very different than the way that the U.S. does horror, um, and as opposed to Europe and uh, Africa and everywhere else. Like everywhere, it has like their own kind of um, seated kind of elements of horror in it. And Japan is very much um, enamored with like the the spiritual realm and kind of like the way that they craft all those stories. And was that something that influenced a little bit more of like those cosmic elements that you write about or yeah that's so interesting that you say that because I'm also the same way I love watching horror movies from different countries to see how they how they spin their stories Mm -hmm. um and yeah Japan has the spiritualism and also um emotional grudges like the movie itself the grudge but the ring Mm -hmm. is also about you know these negative feelings in the form of the little girl that like continuously uh haunts people who have seen her pain and things like that so the idea of pain lasting after death and causing more harm so yeah I I love foreign horror movies uh has it influenced my own writing I would say it must have just because like everything you consume as a writer is going to influence how you write things I don't know if I could call out a specific example in my own writing I would if I had to guess Junji Ito has probably influenced me the most just because I've I'm I'm like so obsessed with his stuff like Uzumaki is like super interesting like something that just a random thing haunting a town like that being the spiral that may have influenced Godmouth a little bit and I won't spoil anything, but you should read it. Oh, it's, so, I, I already, I already have it in the in the cart. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> or if you want to listen to it, Nocturnal Transmissions did an adaptation, oh, okay. and they are really good. Um, so I think by nature of being a writer, you're going to absorb everything that you see, read, or play like video games Mm -hmm. because Silent Hill does the whole concept of guilt well and again that can tie into like in Japanese culture with horror it's like the feelings left over so like pyramid head being guilt left over and Mm -hmm. like literally trying to kill this guy so I think anything that a writer comes across like even good or bad they're going to kind of absorb it and make use of it whether to learn by it or like be like that's what you avoid so I would say yeah just because I like foreign movies so much could I call it an example probably not (laughs) so with with a you know now that we've talked about you know what remains uh when the stars burn out you have a new book that's coming out yes it's was it December 6th right is when it's coming out Sisters of the Crimson Vine is yeah. my debut novella, and it will be coming out December 6th, but pre-orders are available now, but you've already read it. Oh, yes, I have. Who is your favorite nun? Oh, man. So I'm terrible with names. The really, the the one with, that's like super tall. The redhead, Sister Philippa. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, I got like, I got like some lady, I don't know if you've read or not read, um, played Resident Evil uh, Village at all. You like but the tall I, ladies. <laughs> yeah. So uh, the lady, lady. Uh, How do you I say Demetrescu or something? I want to say is there. Yeah. I, I just say Lady D because yeah. I can never pronounce her name. I'm not quite sure if it's like 
uh, like the French pronunciation. Yeah, or just like or some it... kind of weird random thing. Yeah. If, if it's not like them express or, or I'm not yeah. quite sure but um I got like some super kind of like creepy vibes I mean they're like the whole book and like the way that the the nuns act in that book is just it's very atmospheric and and like dread inducing because it's like they're being really nice to this guy but like he also notices like there's all this other kind of stuff that's like they should be red flags and he can't really do anything about it. And then there's like this towering lady. And I feel like every single time that she comes by, it's like to block him off from doing something. She was like that, that kind of just pillar of like, nope, like access denied. Like you, you, you can't see what we're doing in here kind of thing. And then, uh, you know, without giving anything away, you know, it's like, it's just, uh, it's very interesting the way that she just like gatekeeps everything and then it's very different compared to um was it, I think it's Helena am I pronouncing that Helena right? Elena sister Helena Rose yeah and just between those two there's like a very stark contrast so it's like you have somebody that's like no you can't look anywhere you can't see what we're doing kind of thing and then you have this very like nurturing person that's just like oh you know let's come this way and have some drinks and let have me a good feed time. you let me cut your potatoes <laughs> for you blessed soul so um tell us i mean without like spoilers you know because it's still got a little while before it comes out but um like what was the main like like what was the main driving point i suppose behind that where you wanted to tell this story and where did you get the like the the looming dread feeling that you have throughout that is like really well done and I'm just curious as to where you kind of like pick that apart and like put it together yeah so for context Sisters of the Crimson Vine is a uh, folk horror novella set in the 1970s English countryside our protagonist the poor John Ainsworth has crashed his car and he wakes up in a dilapidated convent uh, which is occupied by 13 unconventional nuns. And of course, from there, as we've already hinted, things aren't what they seem. What are the nuns up to? There's also a lot of uh, wine porn, I guess you could say. <laughs> I talk about wine a lot in it, but it's key to the plot, I swear. So what inspired it? Sometimes this can be a hard question for me to answer, and it feels like such a cop-out, so I'll try my best. But <laughs> I'll, my writing process, I'll often have a germ of an idea, and then I mull it over in my brain for, it could be weeks or months um, before I do anything with it, even writing it down, because I like to gamble, you know, will my brain forget it, <laughs> living life on the edge. And so the exact origins of this novella are a bit harder to pin down. I know, so there were several aspects that went into it like grapes being like super red I was brought up Catholic so of course there's the you know the you know you drink the blood of Christ and you eat the the body so that also tied in with the wine and like the the ceremonial aspect of it mm -hmm. and for the setting in particular I set it in the 1970s English countryside because like I guess for me folk horror is often in the English countryside like the wicker man um 
so I guess like a part of my brain was like brr folklore is British countryside <laughs> but also I mean, in the works, 19 yeah but also in the 1970s and they suffer a really bad drought like some like lots of people died and such and that does tie in as you've read it uh to what happens in the events of the story so being brought up Catholic and also just being a woman like often you know your parents tell you I guess they wouldn't tell you I don't know what your parents told you maybe they told you this that'd be weird but they're like you have to be more ladylike like if you run up the stairs you're like you sound like an elephant and not a little lady like so even from a young age like I remember having these like gender boundaries put on me like be quiet be be nice be don't make a fuss, don't rock the boat, like be polite. And of course, then you see all like the Stepford Wives and the different books and movies that dive into that as well also influenced me. Like you talk about the nuns being like so kind and stuff, but there's something going on. I kind of subverted the the Stepford Wives trope where that, you know, in the Stepford Wives, spoilers for anyone who hasn't read it yet, at this point you should have, there's like three movies or something based off of it, but you know, they've been transformed into like the perfect wife mm-hmm. um, and they've lost who they are versus like my nuns use it as a defense to kind of keep people out and keep them off guard, you know, so they are hiding who they truly are to strangers and John being an outsider doesn't get to see who they are. So in a way, I wrote this novella with the idea that it is from the male gaze. And that's why the reader and John don't get to fully see who the nuns are or what they're up to. Um, Although he tries his best. He's like always about peeking. (laughs) So he's always sneaking around and and lurking and trying to just like figure stuff out. But I I like the, the dynamic, though, that you put him in right because he's in like this healing process after this car crash so in a way I kind of got like a little bit of that like like the Stephen King misery kind of thing where it's like okay now there's like these these nuns they're taking after him or looking after him and can't really go anywhere you know he's still got to like recoup and then you have this other group who inserts themselves into these ladies lives those are the two clergymen who have come to audit the nuns' records for context. Yes, so I'm I'm, I'm kind of like beating around the bush. I'll let you fill in fill yeah. in the gaps. Just well, gadgets. it's this is on the back cover text, so I think it's yeah, safe to yeah. mention. I hope. If <laughs> <laughs> so anyone's like spoiler, I'm like it's literally on the back of the book. <laughs> so, uh, like when they're kind of just going through you know, their job. And then like, he's trying to figure out, he's like, okay, well, there's something going on. And I feel like I shouldn't really be helping them. And they're also kind of weird. And then it's like, you see like those interactions and it's like you, the way that you build this crossroads where it's like, okay, you can either go this way and, and figure out what the nuns are doing, or you can go this way and figure out what the clergymen are doing. And it's kind of like, you, you got to choose, but are you going to figure it out before you're, you're healed, right? And then you can go on your way, or can you? Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the other things that, um, and this one, I'm definitely, I, I won't say anything about it, but the, the ending, was that, did you know that that's how everything was going to end initially? Was that like the building, the starting building point? Or was that something that came later to solidify itself? I think for 
this so normally I pants everything like I just like vomit everything out on the page for this it was being a novella I did decide to plot it out and I did so in those uh, sections that you saw I based them on the steps of creating wine that's why each part is named the way it is um, and so I had this like piece of paper and I had like five squares and I wrote out what event like major event should happen in each mm -hmm. that fit kind of the wine making step so I I already had the ending in mind which doesn't often doesn't always happen when I start writing something oh a lot of times when I'm writing short fiction I'll just have the beginning or even the middle and I'll just write it and by the time I get to the end I'm like ah, I know what's going to happen and of course it's gone the opposite way where I've known the ending and I've had to build it up to that point but this one I did deliberately try to plan it out so I did know how it was going to end from the beginning and I was writing towards that deliberately so what with the pantsing versus the planning uh I guess that would go more towards a lot of your other writing and maybe it's just because it's a, it's, it's shorter pieces versus this is like a little bit of a longer piece what did the length of it was that like the major reason why you decided to plan this one out more I know like you said that like because I I think about stories kind of the same way where it's like you come up with an idea instead of just like writing it down you kind of see if is it just like is this going to stick with me am I going to remember in a little while to the point where it's like yeah this is worth telling and then like you go ahead um or was that something that just kind of like hit you and you were just like I gotta I gotta go ahead and just start planning this out and write it um so I thought on this story idea I think for a month or so and then I think I just wrote down a basic um like a single sentence of what like I think my notes usually read like I'm going to make up a story so I don't spoil anything but say like if it was Hansel and Gretel I'd be like two children woods which death question mark type thing okay. um and then I think I tried writing this novella by pantsing it like I and then I kept failing like I'd get to a certain point I wouldn't know what to do and then I'd be like I quit I'm gonna write short fiction again <laughs> screw this um and so after a couple times of false starts, I was like, I just should like write it out. And I hate outlining it. Hence why I literally just had five boxes and then five events that should define those parts, I guess. Um, and then from there, if I had an idea, I would put like a little note in there. Um, for this one, I actually did have to do research because I was like 1970s, okay. And there's some historical aspects of it which I sh I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. So I had to like look up that and make sure I had dates right because I'm terrible at history and dates and I had to write those down. I'm also really bad with names. So I have to write all my character names down. And even then, like I still forget it. Um, so for this, I did plan it out. But if I were to show you, it'd be like two small journal pages of notes and that's it. Oh wow. And then that's what I went off of it. So I guess it was like partially planned and then half pantsed. Because a lot of the stuff that came about, I added halfway or thought about halfway and then added in. So, yeah, and I am, I'm working on another novella now, actually, and I actually plotted it out more and I feel like I'm struggling with it more. Like, I don't know if it's because I just overplanned it. Yeah, because I have like, if you could see it, there's like eight pages of notes above 
my computer here and it's like names and like you know what should happen and like key points and like themes and like everything and then like I've been struggling so much so maybe I should have just done like five boxes and been like done <laughs> so I had um pretty much the same experience so when I when I moved one of the things that um I wanted to really focus on uh was my writing when I moved down when I moved down here um in Texas and I had never really, I'd, I'd, I'd had ideas, I'd like written stuff and, and finished it, um, but I'd moved so many times that I, I just lost a lot of my writing. So it's like I had it kind of just like from memory where I was like, yeah, that was really bad the way I wrote it, but like I like the ideas of it. So it's like, it's kind of good that I lost it, but I had never heard of NaNoWriMo before. And I remember sitting down to write this like very like, like folklore rich horror fantasy story and it was the first time I had ever sat down to like plan something and by so I you know I think the the goal for NaNoWriMo was like 50,000 words or something like that or maybe you just set your own goal now I don't know if there's I think it's 50,000 still so I think I, I got like 56 or 57,000 within like the first like three weeks like I was just it was really bad I was like going to this coffee shop like right after work and, oh classic yeah you know so um it was like it's nice though it's like right by this waterfront and like I would just get like coffee and it's like one in the morning and like that and then close until like two two thirty in, in the morning sometimes and so I'm just sitting there and I'm like writing this and I'm like maybe I should try and plan it and i I found that after that like 50 something mark, everything else was just like chapter outlines and planning and all this other stuff. And I was like, I'm literally writing a book of planning. <laughs> so I had to like stop and go back and just be like, I'm just going to pants it for now. But what what would you say is like the hardest thing for you between planning, like being a planner and being a pantser? The hardest thing... Well, I think the inherent risk of pantsing is that you, you lose, like you can, like not always, let me clarify, but I feel like sometimes if you're just pantsing it, you might not have as much depth as somebody who's deliberately gone through and planned everything and made sure that their themes are really woven in, you know, your characters might not develop as well. Mm -hmm. However, I mean, all. I think all of my short fiction has been pantsed. So I also do feel like if that's your style of writing, it's going to be the best for you. Um, I've discovered now, I guess, that my short fiction, I can just pants. Like usually I'll just have a, a germ of an idea, but my novellas, I guess I just need a little bit of planning so I don't lose my threads. Um, or, and it helps because oftentimes one like my biggest hurdle as a writer is like my um inner negativity um I know people call it like the inner critique but or uh, critiquer or whatever but mine <laughs> critiquer seems to imply that it's constructive in some way <laughs> my inner negativity voice is just like why are you doing this? This is terrible. You should give up. Like, this is pointless. No one's going to like this. You're never going to sell it. No one's going to read it. Um, so it's not construct constructive at all. And I struggle with it a lot. 
um, as with, uh, you know, it ties in with the issues I've had with anxiety and depression. So sometimes with longer pieces, because that's what I struggle with the most, because I have more time to think about how much I'm failing, is that if I have the next step plan out, I don't have to think, I just write. Although the whole time I'm writing, I'm usually like last night, it was like this, I was like writing a paragraph and like I'm writing and my brain is like, wow, this is terrible. You're doing a horrible (laughs) job. Why are you trying? Why not give up? (laughs) But I think a lot of writers suffer from that. I mean, like imposter syndrome is a thing. I know it's hard to really give yourself the grace to realize that. I mean, A, you can go back and edit it. Um, the Sisters of the Crimson Vine went through several drafts and then a, um, I had a group of writers go through it and give me feedback. And then I promptly ignored like one of their la- largest uh, pieces of feedback. And then when it finally sold to Timber Ghost Press, the editor said the same thing. So eventually I was forced to listen to them. So <laughs> tip everyone, listen to your beta readers. <laughs> Shouts out to them. <laughs> so it's often hard to remember that you can just go back and fix it. Like it's not going to really be an issue in the end. Um, as long as you have the dedication to go back, I guess, because if you just finish it and let it go to dust, then I guess it was pointless. So in my current novella, that's kind of what I'm struggling with the most is just, you know, kind of self-doubt, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, it's definitely like a hard, it's a hard thing to do, right. To, to kind of like overcome that. And one of the things that I've been doing lately, right. Cause I, I haven't, um, I haven't particularly been very good at keeping like a set schedule for when I do my writing, because the majority of the time I'm doing schoolwork. So they're just like, you know, like when you get out of here and you do your writing and, you know, you're going to, you're going to have to sit down and and plan these things out. And I'm like, I'm literally just waiting until school is over so I can finish these things. (laughs) But uh, I think one of the the big things that um, I've been trying to figure out is like, when is like the good time for me to write, you know, because I I don't know if you have this issue where it's like, sometimes you come across a roadblock and you're like, I don't know what the hell I should be doing and then it's like you lay down and go to sleep and then like 10 minutes later your brain's like I just I have all the ideas now like this this is what you need to write and you're like I can't like I gotta go to work (laughs) I can't can't be thinking about this stuff now so is there a particular time of day or like a um a particular setting or like some kind of like a ritual that you have that like helps you to get your writing set up Yeah, I think since the beginning, I've always been a night owl. So I do most of my best writing at night, which can sometimes be hard now that I'm working like a regular nine to five because you can't just stay up all night. Like when I was in college, I would just stay up till like two or three in the morning writing. Now my bedtime's 10 because I'm old. (laughs) So I still like you, I work, um, you know, I work my nine to five. This is how you know you're old when you can like be like, this is literally my everyday schedule. But then I usually will go to the gym and honestly, that can be really helpful to kind of help set myself up for writing. Cause I'll usually be thinking about my writing while I'm suffering on the treadmill. And I often have my best ideas when, you know, I can't breathe, I guess. <laughs> nice so, little horror aspect, you know, like when you're struggling for air, you're like, ah, I've got it. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. And then, you know, go home, make dinner. And then after that until bedtime, I'm usually writing. So. I feel like I never hear anyone saying this, but like, 
I've asked a lot of writers this and they're usually like, yeah, I need silence or just like, like music in the background or something like that, like white noise. I like need something on, like I'll have the TV on and I'll put like X-Files or Buffy or a show I've already watched because Mm -hmm. I find, I don't know, this is a horrible coping method, but when I get to a point and I'm writing and my brain is like, stuck or it's going down a spiral of like this is awful you should just stop uh what I'll usually do is I'll focus on the tv and I'll watch the show and then I'll keep typing so like I'll just like it's like I'm like tricking my brain and I'm like yeah I've stopped writing and like I'm watching Buffy and I'm like yeah and then she goes and like she gets stabbed like and so I find it helps cope with I guess my inner monologue a bit when I can distract it with um whatever might be on the tv Mm -hmm. and i i don't know if i've ever heard anyone say they do a similar thing so i don't know if that's the worst thing you could be doing but yeah i'm usually burritoed on the couch with my cat screaming at me with like buffy on the tv (laughs) (laughs) typing away i don't i don't know how you how you do it i mean i can i i have like music playing in the background like my thing is like i i need to have a soundtrack set up for everything so that kind of determines how like the atmosphere is like so atmosphere is super big for me and then music is pretty much what like sets up that ambience for me but like I've I've tried that before just kind of like being like oh yeah I'll just watch something I've seen before and then I just wind up watching the, the movie again and then I'm like crap <laughs> I forgot, yeah. forgot I'm writing so that's, yeah, that's cool. like, you know everyone's got like their own method of, of tricking their brain into yeah like I I can do it with music but I I find I can get frustrated more easily now I feel like when I was younger it was just like I would only have music on so I don't know maybe my self-doubt has grown stronger (laughs) um but yeah like sometimes when I'm writing like a really intense scene I'll put on like a certain soundtrack that matches the mood and like I'll gun it out but usually I'm already in a good writing space for that Mm-hmm. Um, this novel I feel like has been a lot of TV time just because I've struggled with it. <laughs> oh, the, the new one or, or yeah, the new one. Crimson. Sisters of the Crimson Vine was after the few false starts, it was pretty easy to write. I think I had a pretty good grasp of what I wanted to write and how I wanted to write it. And I'm really happy with how it turned out. Well, I mean, it did it turned out quite well. I mean, there were there were times where like I I felt kind of like you know like it sounds like goosebumps and like shivers and you're just kind of like oh like you know like when he's like peeping around and everything you're trying to find stuff out because it's like the like you said like the way that you wrote it right it's like so there's all these kinds of like subtext in in the book and then there's his experience and like mm-hmm. what he can see and I feel like a lot of the books that I read and especially a lot of the films that I've seen lately and I mean, that's kind of my own fault. I've just been like in this like spiral of like a serial killer and extreme horror films and, and books and everything. But as far as just like that kind of looming dread that I was speaking of earlier, it's like when you're when you're going through and you know that there's something going on, but because you're reading, you get those like bigger, like they're subtle, but they're still bigger hints of what's going on than what the character is experiencing Mm -hmm. and it's like there's there there's times where like I wanted to be like don't 
like don't do that like run away and then i'm like oh yeah but like his legs like he can't he can't do that <laughs> but with watching i guess with like watching the like like movies and stuff to kind of shut your brain off from those like negative thoughts that pretty much any kind of creative has i think were there any points where like you had to stop and backtrack and be like oh like i'm inserting stuff from like what i'm watching currently into it or um, I don't think I've ever had that problem. I think part of it is like the stuff that I put on for when I'm writing is stuff that I've already watched. Mm-hmm. So I don't really need to pay attention to it. Um, so usually like I might be like, you know, if I'm stuck and I look at the TV, like I might be watching it, but like my brain is still on my story. Mm-hmm. the only thing I will say is like I have stolen names from shows <laughs> like if I have to name a character and then a character comes on the tv and it's like uh oh, yes here's Katrine I'm like yes Katrine <laughs> so I have like <laughs> that one's, this one's good <laughs> yeah I'm like that's a good name I'll take it so I have like I have done that but I don't know if that counts <laughs> but like or like when the credits were rolled and I'm like oh that's an interesting name yeah that's the name of my character now <laughs> So with the with the 13 sisters, was there any meaning behind any of the names? Like, is there any like significance that ties their name with the story at all? Or was that more just kind of the same of just like this name sounds good for this person? So I actually did research on this because I was like, how do nuns get their names? So apparently uh, when you become a nun, you have to pick a new name as mm-hmm. you become, you know, the bride of christ or whatever it is and usually it's two names so it's like you know helena rose and so i did look up like um names of nuns in the past so i can see kind of the naming conventions and may as a second name was used a lot rose so helena rose i picked i think i think i picked helena just because it's it it's like a at once it's a gentle and a strong sounding name which is who she was and then rose being you know the country rose um the english rose and then a lot of the characters as a thank you to my beta readers got named after them so father O'Haller, the shouts out to chris uh sister philippa uh the school teacher jolie like i named a lot of my i named each each one of my beta readers got a character but i think the main sisters I kept their names as is I can't say I think too much about names if I have to be honest I know a lot of people do when they're naming their characters but usually you know I think about the character as they are and then I just try to pick a name that's suitable or sometimes I just like steal a name from movie credits (laughs) so I can't say I ever plan too much in the name Unless like, like, for example, uh, when I wrote a post-apocalyptic story, yeah. I named one character Nan because it was like short for Nancy. And the other one I named Celine because it was a more delicate sounding name and also kind of sounds like Celeste. And she comes from like a spaceship in the stars. So I was like, oh, makes sense. Mm-hmm. It's delicate sounding, which fit her character. And it's like Celeste, but not being so on the nose, Celeste. <laughs> So yeah, otherwise I think I would just end up choosing names that I either thought fit or just came to my name mind first or I stole from somewhere that I thought was suitable. 
So if that disappoints you or your listeners, I'm sorry. I'm just, you know, not that type of person. <laughs> What's in a name? Nothing. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, names is, is a pretty interesting thing because like, you know, sometimes it's just like, you know, you make a name up or like you're saying, you know, like, oh, you're watching the credits because I've done that before too. You know, it's like, it's just like, oh, that's a cool name. I've never heard that before. You know, and it's just like, you get something unique. But then like, I find sometimes where like, I'm going and I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, okay, this is what the book about. This is what the character is about. Now I got to find a name that like represents like what, what they do in the book and like what the significance is and to their character. So, I mean, it's, I guess some of that is from just from going like, you know, between high school and then college and how some people are just like, you know, like, everything's got to have a meaning and like, why you, is the door blue? Right. Like what kind of significance is are, are, are you saying <laughs> by this, this blue door? And is it, <laughs> is it following the, the tropes of like horror when like, you know, you have like the blue light and it's like, something good is going to happen or the red light and something bad. It's is gonna raining. Happen. Yeah. <laughs> that means there's sadness on the horizon. <laughs> yeah so there's always some kind of uh I mean like even if you're if you're not meaning to put meaning into something I feel like somebody is always going to try and connect the other dots you know like I don't know if you've seen um it's always sunny in Philadelphia at all I'm I'm not gonna lie I'm very one-dimensional and I mainly just watch consume horror media so no. <laughs> well that so so um I made a I made an exception for Brooklyn 99 and oh, uh community okay. <laughs> that's okay it. community's good too community's a really good one um well except for the last season yeah um, we don't talk about that yeah <laughs> but they have they have this one scene um and for people who have seen uh it's always sunny it involves Charlie, who was just like he. I I feel like he is the best. If you were like to personify what comedy is and comic relief, I feel like that would be like the best character to describe anything um, that deals with that. And so he's working in this mailroom, and he's going he, he's going through all these letters and everything, and like one of the other buddies that he has is like trying to get this job, and so they they have it finally and they're trying to keep it and they're in this basement and he's got like all of these people's names on this wall and he's just like you could tell he's just like very disheveled and like smoking is that the the meme where he's like this yeah and he's got all like the yeah i know the meme (laughs) instantly (laughs) do the meme (laughs) reddit culture am i right (laughs) knowledge about so many things yeah so he's he's like oh these people don't exist they don't exist and and like you know just like trying to like put like meaning to this and I feel like a lot of the times sometimes when people are reading stuff or even watching stuff and it's like they try to find meaning and they're just like well what are are all these names like connected to something and it's like like you're saying you know it's like sometimes it could be like no like I just literally just I got it from from over there like you don't need yeah. to draw There's named no it after my beta reader <laughs> <laughs> so have there have there been times though where in other parts of your writing um like the little the the shorter stories or or with um your collection of stories where you did do that intentionally where there were things and then like people just didn't pick them up so I can't I can't mention it but there is something in the novella that I think is pretty subtle. And like, I feel like half the people have gotten it. 
and half the people haven't. Um, it's a mystery and a side of mystery. Yes, it is. Also, there's a pun in the back cover that uh, I don't know how many people have gotten because <laughs> I do like puns. But I feel like that's a difficult question to answer just because I don't like, you know, people will read my stuff. We don't necessarily get into deep conversations about whether they understood every aspect of it. And not a lot of people will put that in the reviews either, right? At the same time, even though I've written the story, you know, I've crafted it, I don't necessarily like want to explain it like fully to the reader Uh, I'll have friends who'll read my stuff and they'll be like oh explain this and I'm like well part of the part of the experience like I write the story like I, I write the story but you as the reader are going to experience it your own way and that makes it your own unique experience as well so when people will ask me to break down an ending or certain aspects I feel like it kind of kills the magic like I'm not going to show you how I do my magic like <laughs> you've experienced it the way you have and it's your own unique thing and I don't know if that sounds like a cop-out answer but I mean like I often don't discuss books that I've read with fellow horror readers a because I don't know I just don't know many in person I guess but b also because like it's my own unique experience and I'm kind of afraid of people ruining it Uh, my husband does that all the time so (laughs) we'll watch a horror movie and I'll be like wow that was great he's like let me point out all the plot holes and I'm like you you ruined it you ruined it and we get into arguments on the drive home and then by the time we get home he's convinced me and that's it it's ruined get away Uh. from me (laughs) so like I guess in a way I protect my own experience but I as a writer also don't want to affect another's experience even I know it's my own story but if somebody say reads Godmouth and they're like oh I I thought the ending was like this yeah like so cool like tell me how you wrote the ending and what you meant it's like well no it's your experience now like if I like say I disagree with them like if I say that it's gonna like you're so excited with how you read the ending like you know it's I don't know if I'm explaining it right yeah I mean it's it's definitely like it's a I would say that's like an even mix of understanding that there's like the objective way to look at what you're reading or what you're writing and then there's the subjective way um I think with especially with horror and I I can't say just especially with horror I think it's within any fandom um when you're experiencing something as an individual certainly there are going to be some things that everybody is going to find um commonality with right so whether that's a plot element or a certain character that somebody likes or some kind of subtext that more people pick up on not um than not even if that's that not something that the author um originally had in mind it's something that you know enough people had the experience where they're just like they just kind of like take it for you know canon for whatever um gravity that has you know yeah um, canon can be different for everyone too um but i think a good example of that and I haven't seen it or anything I'm still like working on the original ones but the new uh, Halloween film that came out and all I've been seeing is like there's you know people are like oh it's very divisive and 
you know, there's got this group over here that likes it and a group over here that doesn't like it. And then you have like the other group that's like, you're gatekeeping if you don't like this film. <laughs> and it's just like, I mean, if as long as, you know, I mean, obviously there's going to be opinions where it's just very one dimensional, but I mean, there's other parts of it where it's like you're understand when you understand the difference between the uh, um, a, objective lens versus the subjective lens. And you can be like, yeah, like you didn't like it, but like I did. And these are the reasons why I liked it. And I think that's where you start seeing the, the breakdown of like, okay, well, we got this interpretation out of it and this is what we like about it. And this is what we don't. And I feel like if more people did that, you'd, you'd have a, a lot more um, structured fandoms. And I think like that kind of, that kind of feedback too is, is like, I think that's what blooms more healthy. I, I don't want to say good feedback but like a healthier type of feedback for creatives mm -hmm. so because it's like you're not like going up to the author or you know the writer or director or anything and being like how dare you you're like you killed my favorite character that's terrible <laughs> writing and it's just like well maybe they just wanted to piss you off and like that that they made their objective like that was what they were trying to do or maybe they weren't you know you never know so yeah I mean I totally get like the whole um subjective thing as far as like you don't want to nail down like well this is this is the way it is and there's no alternative to it yeah and I feel like some stories that I write I deliberately leave them in a way that's supposed to be ambiguous mm -hmm. and so then for people to be like well which one is it is it like this interpretation or th this other one and I'm like well I wrote it so you had to pick <laughs> yeah. my story the first story in my collection what remains when the stars burn out sanitize I I wrote in a way and people have asked me oh is it like all in her head or was it real and I'm like well that's I wrote it the way I wrote it to kind of make you wonder like I'm not going to tell you because <laughs> like if then I say well I like in my mind in my canon it's this well that's how they're going to see it um, and it kind of ruins the whole point of how I wrote it, I guess. No offense to whoever has already asked me that question. I still love you. <laughs> Just don't <laughs> ask me that question. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the 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 kind of like ambiguous endings is, I feel like I, I get that more from Japanese horror more than anything else. Um, for those who haven't oh read- Oh my God, you're right. That answers like one of the very first questions that you asked yeah. me. What, how have I been? It's my ambiguous <laughs> endings. <laughs> Living on Junji. <laughs> so I don't, I don't know if you read anything from Ryu Murakami, but the addition and in the miso soup both do that. It's very much like they have. I mean, there's like some closure, but it's just a very abrupt, like dead stop. And it's just like, it's kind of like if you if you're curious about something you know and it's like this big kind of like life-changing event and then somebody's just like oh yeah you know it's, it's just this and then that's the end you know and then it's like you're kind of like well what really just happened you're sitting there and you're trying to unpack everything and then uh, I, I feel like if you're if you're more of a like a broad spectrum type of um reader or 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 viewer depending you know um and you see like the different ways that people interact with horror and how they tell their stories um you know that's i i kind of feel like that's like my preferred thing i kind of had some of those feelings when i finished 
um, your novella. Good. Uh, and so my biggest thing with that, because I, I don't want to keep you for too much longer, um, so I just got a few questions more, but um, without spoiling anything, mm -hmm. you know, coming to those kind of story endings where it's like you do kind of wonder about some other things, you know, because you do a great job of tying up all the loose ends, which is something that is very hard to do in short stories. And maybe it's too early to ask, but I'm curious if you have more planned for, for that universe. Um, For the sisters? No, this is definitely a standalone story. I think if you digest on it a little bit, it kind of becomes clear why. Mm -hmm. But I can also explain to you after the interview when the listeners aren't around. Um, <laughs> it's definitely a standalone. Um, I think with folk horror, there's that idea that um, whatever is happening, like if you think about the Wicker Man, whatever is happening, it will keep going after the protagonist has moved on, whether it be in a burning in a bee suit or like surviving and moving on or like midsummer, they will continue on as they are. Mm -hmm pretty much you know their ceremonies will continue their traditions will continue and that's kind of what makes it scary it's almost right. like cosmic horror in the way in a way because like the singular protagonist is helpless in cosmic horror it's the elder gods or the old ones and in folk horror it's you're helpless in the face of traditions or like this village you know it's usually a village in the english countryside <laughs> <laughs> It's like, that's like the, the number one thing, you know, it's like the secluded town or the, or the, or the village, or, I mean, I guess it's, I mean, it's like that, it's like that in, in, in a lot of Junji Ito stuff too. It's yeah. Very so then if you think about it to write a sequel, sequel it would almost be like retelling the same story. Yeah. So definitely a standalone. Blessed be. I think one of the things that I really enjoyed about that story and one of the things that I like about some of the, um, I don't want to say like old settings, right? Because like then I feel like that just dates everybody that's right yeah. around my age because it's like it was, it's not that long ago, but um, the no cell phones, like there's yeah. no that's also helpful communication yeah. so that's that definitely feels um more isolating it's like it's not like it's it's not like now where you realize that there's like no cell phone tower and then it's like oh well you know that's scary because i've because growing up it's like i didn't have a cell phone i'm sure you didn't have a cell phone for a little while you know and then it's like i guess it's not as as scary having that element and then losing it versus like knowing like yeah like that's not even a thing like that's not an option um yeah so. I definitely feel writing horror now you have like writers have a bit more hurdles to overcome if they want the reader and the protagonist to feel more isolated mm -hmm. and there's the tropes that have come up you have, your battery is dead yeah. magically there's no service you know or like if it's more psychological horror, then you make the call, but the person on the other line isn't actually the person you think you're talking to. Mm -hmm. um, so definitely setting it in the 1970s definitely was a little helpful in making it, um, making it easier to isolate the characters from the outside world. So with everything that we've covered today, um, and I know you've, you've had quite a long journey with all the short stories and 
molding a lot of it into your short story collection. You've got this novella coming out December 6th, um, and you have your new one that you're working on now. Uh, what is like a key piece of advice or observation that you want to like give to everyone, whether they're a seasoned writer or whether they're just starting out? I think just one of the toughest things about the writing industry is the large volume of criticism and rejection that you're going to face, whether you're established or a new writer. Um, it's just the nature of the industry. The industry itself is competitive. It can feel um, isolating and definitely, you know, hurtful at times to get the rejection letters in your email. Um, and I guess all I can say is you have to learn to roll with it. I'm, I mean, people have said it before, but as a writer, you kind of have to have this weird balance between having an inflated ego that will protect you from those rejection letters that you can say like, whatever, like they didn't like it, but that doesn't mean it's a bad story. It's a great story. Somebody else is going to want it versus having the vulnerability and openness to accept criticism to improve yourself. And it's a, a extraordinarily hard balance to achieve and I guess I guess at this point rejection letters still hurt me but I usually just I'm very much like the the type that I'm like ah oh, yes life is suffering and <laughs> this just makes sense <laughs> so I guess that's helpful having that attitude I don't know if it's healthy I don't know what my therapist would say about that it might help for people to remember that there's an editor on the other side I I interviewed an editor and a press owner recently on my own YouTube channel mm -hmm. to kind of help maybe shine a light on that side of things. Like it's hard to send out rejections. I co-edited an anthology and it was really hard to send out the rejection letters. It sucks. You don't want to do it, but you also can't accept everything. I right. mean, that's just how it is. You want to have, you don't want to have like a anthology that's the size of an encyclopedia. <laughs> no one's going to read that. So it is, un it's unfortunate on both sides of the business. And also there's always going to be an opportunity to get that story published, whether it's another anthology call or you decide to self-publish it, or you decide to um, make a collection and send that out for acceptance. Like there's always going to be somebody who wants the story. You just have to keep searching. And the worst thing you can do is let the rejection get to you and let yourself give up because of it because then what was the point of any of it so really you just have to take it on the chin and what even is that phrase is that like being punched in the chin I don't know but you have to like you know you take it you set it aside and you keep moving forward that's the best you can do um because in the end that's all you can do I mean that's how I've managed to have the the writing path that I've had um is I just kept going and when I get the rejection emails I usually look at it and then that's it I'm off writing again mm -hmm. and you know I guess that that would be my advice is the worst thing you can do is take the rejection personally and start obsessing about it and start um focusing on only that what you should do is I don't know put it aside if you need to keep writing or if you really want to if it makes you feel better you 
you send it to another place right away you know that's that's all you can do you know you don't want to do like the the Stephen King thing I think I've I've gotten this question before too about like rejections and it's just like everyone's like don't you just do you just like save all the rejection letters and just say no (laughs) yeah and I know people who have excel sheets and they track it and to me yeah so I've I've seen that and like, you know, people will save it. People say they print them out Mm -hmm. to me um, because I like, I am a negative person. I try very much not to focus on the negative because I'm very good at it and I'm very good at spiraling and getting into a depressive state. So I just ignore it. I don't save it in my inbox. I don't delete it either. I just treat it like no offense to people that I've sent stories to who've sent me form rejections. It's not anything on you but I usually just treat it like spam I'm just like okay whatever like I move on um I've never yeah I've never saved any of my I don't track my rejections um or anything like that the only thing I focus on if I get an acceptance Mm -hmm. is like I will like go back and read the email and I'll be like yeah I'm so excited like yay I'm like you know it's the confidence um, boost yeah but like I won't allow myself to focus on the negative because it's so easy to get sucked into that um void really and I don't need any more help (laughs) to be negative in my own brain than rejection letters so personally I wouldn't recommend tracking it I feel like that'd be so demoralizing like if people look at my portfolio they'll be like oh you've been published like this many times like you're so successful and I'm like okay but like imagine how many times I got rejected first Mm -hmm. like that's the thing like my like if it was like a color system my red lines would outweigh my green lines a lot more and that's the thing and that's exactly why I don't focus on it because in the end it doesn't matter because in the end I did finally get an acceptance and that's what should matter not the rejections so with your with your pieces of advice there very good pieces of advice um is there anything in closing that you would like to plug I mean I know you got your new novella that you're working on um but um coming down the pipelines yeah so again sisters of the crimson vine come out December 6th and it's available for pre-order but also very exciting I was a part of a collaborative project to create a 90s horror anthology and that was a lot of fun to write. Um, it's edited by Chelsea Pumpkins. It has a, it's going to have a foreword by Max Booth the Third, um, and the cover by Cassie, as well. Daly, I think. Daly, D-A-L-E-Y. Uh, she's a very talented artist. Um, the cover is spectacular. It's called Ah. That's what I call '90s horror. Uh, I wrote a story about a haunted blockbuster so it was a lot of fun and I would definitely recommend checking that out it's going to be very nostalgic I feel like the 90s are in right now get the 80s out of here (laughs) (laughs) I think everybody's had too much of the 80s and now yeah trapper keepers (laughs) and all that um so I would pre-orders for that are available. If you get a signed copy, you get a bunch of merch as well, some of which I did design. So that's exciting. And I'm really proud of my story. I thought it was a lot of fun. And also it, it does tie in with another story in the anthology. So it's kind of like a shared universe. So you're the first one I've told. So a little tidbit for your podcast listeners. Uh, so I would I'd recommend it. 
it's gonna be a lot of fun man with the with the 90s horror i feel like i don't i don't know if it's in there but like the first thing that popped into my mind like 90s and horror i think of like what is like a, a terrible thing that could happen with like a tamagotchi or something like that i don't know if you remember those at all yes i actually um so i have it here one of the merch pieces your audience isn't going to be able to see this but i made a little horror gotchi oh that's awesome <laughs> so um so for the the listeners it's it looks like a tamagotchi but it's got a little demon in it, it says horror gotchi on it i thought it was pretty cute <laughs> So, and are the, the pre-orders are up on those already? Yep. Um, so I have it linked on my website, but if you go to Chelsea Pumpkin's website as well, she has all the links there as well. Awesome. All right. So. Well, thank you so much for coming out and having this chat with us, Plem. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Of course. Thanks for inviting me. And once again, everybody, the, the Sisters of the Crimson Vine comes out on December 6th. You can get it from Timber Ghost Press. I believe it's already up for pre-order, like I said. So yeah. go ahead, pre-order it, check it out. It is worth the read. If you like like folklore and like looming dread kind of atmospheric stuff, definitely check it out. Thanks for checking out another episode of the Generic Podcast. If you would like to know more information about author Plum, you can go ahead over to her Instagram page. I will leave the links down in the show notes. Keep in mind that she will be having a live cast show on the 19th. So you can go over to her social media pages and check out the event via Everbright for tickets. Make sure also to check out her YouTube page. And don't forget, obviously, to pre-order her new novella. Sisters of the Crimson Vine, December 6th, from Timber Ghost Press. And until next time, y'all keep being the amazing people y'all are.